Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Matthew chapter 6. The text is also printed in a bulletin for you. Matthew 6. We're about halfway through a series on the Lord's Prayer. I mentioned last week during the adult Sunday school class that the church historically has employed uh, these three things in the basic instruction of Christians. Uh, First is the Apostles' Creed, uh, which sums up our core beliefs. It's the holy faith. It's a thing that um, most Christians have been able to agree about, pretty basic kind of fundamentals of uh, what we believe. The Ten Commandments, which sums up God's law. uh, So it's the standard for our, our conduct for life. And then the Lord's Prayer, which sums up um, not just prayer, but really the, the whole spiritual life. Uh, the prayer is, um, is deep. It connects with pretty much everything that is uh, kind of most important in the Christian life. Um, I'm sure that you have uh, the Lord's Prayer memorized, most of you, probably. Um, and I think if you understand the meaning of the Lord's Prayer, so the meaning of each of the petitions as we've been um, looking at, the, at them for these weeks, uh, and not just each of the petitions, but the whole together, the flow of them and uh, the sum of them, then, uh, then I think you'll have all the resources that you need to live as a Christian. Uh, you'll have the basics, right? You'll know where to go, um, and, and you'll be able to communicate that also, what it means to be a Christian to other people. Um, now, of course, that does not mean that others will like what they hear when you communicate it to them. Uh, and that may especially be true of the petition that we're covering this morning. In fact, if you're, a, if you're a Christian, you may not like this much, so just giving you a fair warning. Um, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we need your help as we consider your word. Uh, left to ourselves, we would resist everything that you have to say. We would resist you. And we pray that you would uh, do the work that only you can do in tearing down all the barriers between us and you, that you would overcome our resistance, that you would make us uh, truly able to submit to you and to your word. We know it's for our good, but we need your help. And we need uh, your your spirit's help to illuminate our minds. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. So if you remember, um, last week we also looked at this petition uh, from the perspective that we're asking our Father to enable us to do his moral will, um, his revealed will, his law. Remember we talked about the, the two kinds of will that are in God, and I'll hopefully explain a little bit more about that as we go along. It sounds a little shifty, but, um, but he's got this moral will, this revealed will, the things that he's set down in the scriptures, his commands, his law, <clears throat> and we've approached uh, this petition, your will be done, um, in, in light of this, we need him to help us in our active obedience, right? in our submission to his moral will. And uh, with this petition, we're praying for that help. And there's another aspect of our obedience that we need 
his help with, and that's why it's a prayer, um, and that's our passive obedience. Right? It's our submitting to whatever comes our way from God's sovereign hand as our king and as our father. Right? So this is our submission, um, not to his moral will, but to his secret will, the will of his decree by which he orders the universe in all of its circumstances. And uh, I read this last week, I'll, I'll read it again, because uh, I, I think it's good. And if you pay attention, especially to the, uh, the qualif- uh, qualifying phrases here, um, it really captures a lot from, from our church's uh, standards. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, says this, God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. Those are important qualifications. Um, And it's it's not just uh, the the Scottish Presbyterians who who believe this. The Heidelberg Catechism uh, gives another example of this. Question 27, Heidelberg says, what do you mean by the providence of God? It says, the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Um, it's pretty weighty stuff, but it's, it's kind of elementary divinity, right? I mean, God's providence, God's sovereign will. He's God. Um, it's easy for us to believe in God's sovereign will in his providence like this when things are good, right? When we find a beautiful person to marry or... Um, when we get that new job that seems like it'll fulfill us. Right? When, um, when we win the sports game or run into an old friend, what are the kinds of things we say when the good things happen? That was such a God thing. Right? That was such a God thing. Um, implicit is maybe a contrast with all other things, which must, of course, be non-God things. Right? Um, God's sovereign will becomes problematic for us when Circumstances are unpleasant. When we hit, as the Heidelberg says, the drought, the barren years, sickness, and the poverty part of all things. We'd rather think differently of God than that it would be according to his will that these hard circumstances come into our lives. In fact, this is a huge problem for pretty much everyone. Um, and it's a, it's a problem that we shouldn't minimize for a second. Uh, it's a problem for people who refuse to believe in such a God as would allow evil to continue in his world. So many people are real victims with real hurts, real suffering, and they simply cannot reconcile their pain and what they see wrong with this world with the God of the Bible. And since their pain is very real, um, and God seems so distant, they, they jettison God, and they fortify their hearts against him. Right? Refuse to believe in such a God. 
so many people who actually identify themselves as atheists uh, are people with a history of suffering. The doctrine of God's sovereign will is ultimately one of comfort, but the unbeliever can't see it that way. He has no categories for that. And it's not just a problem for unbelievers. It may be an even bigger problem for believers, for Christians, to think that God is sovereign over everything. Because we know something of God. We know his revealed will. We know his moral will. We know the Ten Commandments. And so many things that happen in this world violate that. Violate his moral will, his revealed will, what we know about him. Right? What he has revealed about himself. There's a sense in which we can cry out to God in our pain, your will is not being done here. And that's true. His law is broken constantly by everyone, everywhere. His revealed will is not being done, and we certainly suffer for it. Um, But his secret will is always being done. And that's kind of scary, right? Um, Who are we dealing with here? Some schizo deity? A God who contradicts his own orders? Someone who's divided against himself? So on top of the real pain of our circumstances, it seems just wrong to say that God's will is being done when you've got things like the Holocaust or 9-11 still happening in this world. Or more personally, when our children get kidnapped or when our spouses turn to other people as lovers. Our God's law is being broken. And that really hurts us, right? Um, And maybe we can hold some kind of theology that allows for real pain like this and at the same time not jettison God. We still trust in him. We still put our hope in him, right? But surely our God is not in charge of that pain. Surely he doesn't will that, right? told you you might not like this much, but the Bible says that God does will everything that comes to pass. And when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done, we're asking for his help to submit to his secret will, especially when it hurts. So let me first um, try to persuade you from the scriptures that his will is always being done. Um, Kind of sums it up in Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Uh, It's a pretty sweeping statement, but um, again, the real problem is when things hurt, right? When things run straight against God's revealed will. So let's look at some instances of that. Let's look briefly at Joseph's life. You remember Joseph, Genesis uh, chapters 30 through 50. So a substantial portion of the introductory book of the Bible. Joseph was the young punk brother who had visions about the rest of his family, his brothers and his parents, uh, bowing down before him and was um, stupid enough to tell them about that. Um, Some advice, if you have dreams like that, don't brag about them. (laughs) Um, His brothers didn't appreciate when he said that, and they plotted to kill him, but instead ended up just throwing him in a pit and selling him into slavery in Egypt. And um, 
And that kind of stuff is against God's revealed will, isn't it? Then later in his life, uh, Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of an attempted rape when really it was her fault, right? Her lust. And he was innocent, but, um, but she had him thrown in the dungeon, an innocent man in the dungeon for years. That kind of thing goes straight against God's revealed will. He suffered unjustly as a slave and a prisoner for 13 years because of how his brothers had sinned against him. And, uh, and then he rose to power and he saved Egypt. And he really saved all the nations of the known world at the time uh, during a, a great famine that lasted for years. And his, then his dreams were fulfilled. And his brothers came and they all bowed before him. And his brothers were worried about his vengeance. And uh, they said in Genesis 50, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. It's reasonable fear. But what did Joseph say? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I mean, that's pretty amazing. His brothers uh, were not excused for their evil. It was evil, and they had meant it for evil. And Joseph's suffering was real suffering due to that evil. But the Holy Scripture says that God is credited with having intended the whole thing for good. He orchestrated the evil acts that brought Joseph to a place where he could literally save the world. And there's the Apostle Paul. Paul received unspeakable revelations, uh, grand visions of heaven, the kind that make you proud uh, of yourself to think, God gave me these visions, right? But he said in 2 Corinthians 12, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So God, rather than simply not granting Paul revelations of heaven, which would tend to make one conceited, or somehow making it magically impossible for Paul to become conceited about the revelations that he'd been given, God's answer to the problem was this, send a messenger of Satan to harass him, to keep him from being conceited, to keep him humble. Now, it's a little easier for us to swallow when we can kind of understand how evil events or evil agents led to good outcomes. When we can see the trajectory, the purpose of suffering, in that case, yeah, maybe, okay, we can kind of acknowledge that God was behind that. Maybe that was a God thing after all. We can see the direction of it. We can see the purpose of it. But what about when the reason for our suffering is imperceptible to us? When we never see the purpose for it? What about when we're just staring at a brick wall of pain? This is not going to go away. Not in our lifetime, anyway. Um, In our Old Testament reading, the prophet Habakkuk basically cried out to God, 
How is it possible that you would use unrighteous people, these Babylonians, unrighteous people to punish your people who are more righteous than they are? How can you do that and be righteous yourself? He's crying out to God. He's complaining to God. And God promised him that he was going to send the bloodthirsty, godless, unjust hordes of Babylon to ravage his people. And he didn't really elaborate on how that was going to be good for them. He just said he was going to do it. In the words of Psalm 44, which apply to God's people throughout the ages, he gave up his people as sheep to be slaughtered. For centuries. Looking back, uh, studying God's word, we can see what was happening there, right? God was meeting out righteous judgment against his people for their sins, and he was preparing the world, he was preparing the way for the Savior Jesus. But those people were just dying, generation after generation of them. They ate their own babies in despair. And then uh, there's Job. The book of Job explicitly portrays just about the deepest conflict that we have with the doctrine of God's sovereign will over all things. What happened to Job? Satan asked God's permission to afflict Job as a test of his faith, and God said yes. So then all of Job's livestock were killed through human acts of violence. And all of his children were killed by an act of nature. Satan had arranged these terrible things for Job. And what did Job say? Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. It's real suffering. And he fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Dude, didn't you read the first chapter? Yahweh didn't do this to you. Satan did this to you. Don't put that on Yahweh. Don't put that on God. But what does the Holy Scripture say? The inspired word of God in the very next verse says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job did not sin or wrongfully accuse God when he said that God had taken away his children. And then Satan went to God again and asked for permission to hurt Job physically. And God said, yes, And Satan uh, struck Job with sores from head to toe so that Job was scraping himself with broken pottery while sitting in ashes. Pretty miserable picture of real suffering. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job, again, it was Satan that struck you with the sores. You just said you received evil from God, 
and somehow that's okay? That's okay for you to say that? And just so you know, it wasn't a fluke the first time. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job did not sin when he applied, implied that his evil affliction was from God. So let me say this as clearly as possible. <clears throat> this is a great mystery. God controls all things by the will of his decree, yet in such a way that he is not culpable. He is not the author of sin and evil. He does not, this is crazy, he does not violate his revealed will in the exercise of his secret will, even though he brings to pass things that violate his revealed will. He uses the will of sinful men. He uses the will of the devil himself to bring about his good purposes in the world. And even though he decrees that evil things come to pass, he remains good. And unless you've got divine omniscience, you cannot possibly understand how that works. Don't try. But the Bible says clearly that it's true over and over again. God is sovereign over all things. I'm sure there are plenty of twisted syndromes that we could develop, uh, thinking that we're doing justice to the doctrine of God's sovereign will. Please don't use this as some kind of excuse for your sin, as if you deserved accolades for participating in God's magnificent will through your evil, through your wickedness. Eli's sons, the uh, the priest Eli, in 1 Samuel, opening chapters, Eli's sons were denied repentance because it says the Lord wanted to kill him, kill them. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God, it says in Exodus several times, so that he resisted Moses. And in the end, they were responsible. They were accountable for their sin. There is real evil in the world, and in a sense it should not be there, And we are right to lament the existence of evil and pain and suffering and sin. We are still the guilty party. We still need to apologize and ask forgiveness and repent and turn away from our sins. And if we don't do that, we're in trouble. We're accountable. But in another sense, God wills it all. And he remains good in doing so. And again, no one has an explanation for how that works. But then what what kind of God did you expect? One that you could fully understand? One that you could control and order around? Or one whose ways are beyond your ways? Whose thoughts are higher than your thoughts? Who controls you? Now, it might just seem to you like some kind of nifty parlor trick that God's able to do this. By his sovereign will, he can decree all things and yet not be culpable, not be the author of sin. That, that's, that's great. That's really great. But you still wonder, how on earth is that helpful to me when there's real suffering in my life, when there's real evil in this world to be dealt with? Okay, so somehow, theoretically, God controls all things and remains good. How is that a comforting doctrine? How does that help me to endure hardships? How does that help me to submit as I pray, your will be done? 
First, let me tell you what it doesn't imply. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray for God to change your circumstances. You should still pray for God to change your circumstances. God tells us to pray. He tells us to ask him to change things in our lives and in the world. Jesus himself prayed for things to change in the garden. He knows what it means to suffer in submission to God's secret will. He desperately prayed three times, sweating blood, for God to change things for him. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The perfect human, perfectly obeying God, perfectly submitting to God's will, asked God to change things. He was saying, Father, I know you've planned this from all eternity, that it's been predicted for hundreds of years by the holy prophets. As Isaiah said, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, but I don't want to be crushed. I don't want that to happen. If there is any way that that doesn't have to happen, please, please. He wanted something other than God's secret will. Even though ultimately he submitted to God's secret will and he prayed, not as I will, but as you will. So the one who lived in perfect obedience to God was a man of sorrows. And he was doing it right. So that's okay. It's okay to not want the things that God has brought into your life. It's okay to not understand exactly what God is doing in your life. The psalmists, the psalmists are always complaining to God about what he's doing. Um, read Psalm 13. They're always questioning what's going on, why, how long till you change this. But in the end, we're to submit to God's will, just like the psalmists always do. They always come back around just like Jesus. Jesus knows what it means to suffer infliction under God's will. The divine became a human, and he can perfectly relate to us at this point. So God knows how difficult it is to submit to God's will when it hurts. But Jesus demonstrated a perfect faith. He was willing to passively endure the decree of God because he knew who God is and what God can do. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan, said, What do we pray for in these words, Thy will be done? We pray for passive obedience, that we may submit to God's will patiently in what he inflicts. And how do we do that? How does God answer that prayer? He strengthens your trust in his goodness through the gospel. Remember uh, Heidelberg 27 on Providence that we read earlier on his upholding and governing all things by his fatherly hand, all things? Here's the next question in the Heidelberg. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, 
and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. So in the mystery of his secret will, all things that come to pass are ultimately for his glory and for our good because he is our faithful father and God. We can be patient in adversity. We can be thankful in prosperity and trusting him in all things because the one who is in absolute control has promised us that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. His purposes never fail. He can do whatever he wants. And so when he makes a promise like, nothing can separate you from my love, isn't that good news? The clearest place for us to see this is at the cross. Right? Jesus prayed against the cross, but it was going to happen. And ultimately Jesus submitted himself to God's secret will. He was tortured, he was crucified, he was murdered. The innocent one was shamed and killed. As a criminal. And if anything ever went expressly against God's revealed will, it was when his son was hanging on the cross. Expressly against God's revealed will. Yet the death of Christ on the cross was the will of God, and it was the best thing that's ever happened for you. The best thing that's ever happened for you and me. The apostles acknowledged it in prayer as they said to the sovereign Lord in Acts 4 that the evil men gathered against Jesus Christ, they just did what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. And God rewarded their prayer with an outpouring of his spirit. That's like God saying, in all this, the apostles did not sin or charge me with wrong. So the, the greatest evil that had ever been committed in the history of humanity came to pass according to the sovereign will of God. Why? For your eternal salvation and your glorious joy. For your reconciliation to God. For your communion with God that will last forever. So that you would be made a new creation able to live in and enjoy the new heavens and the new earth in the presence of the risen Christ. So what's the gospel logic here? If God willed the greatest evil in history against his own son for your greatest good, then you can be assured that all things work together for your good. If God was willing to give up his beloved son on the cross for you, then you can rest knowing that everything that happens to you is ultimately for your good. And this is good news because of God's character, because of God's promise to do you good. It's good news that's proven to you in the cross of Christ, and it's good news precisely because he is utterly sovereign and he is able to accomplish all of his holy will. And at the end of the day, Job glorified God for his sovereignty. 
He didn't get the answers he was asking for about why he was suffering. But he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Would you rather have a well-meaning but impotent God who's not able to do anything about your suffering? Charles Spurgeon said, this is a great quote, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. When you know that it's your Father in heaven, the one who's adopted you by his grace through the death of his own beloved Son, who delights over you with singing, when you know it's this Father who measures out your trials, who intends nothing but good for you through them all, then you have real resources to be able to submit to God's will patiently and in hope. God's purposes often mean our suffering. They did for Jesus. Can't escape that. But those sufferings are promised by the blood of Christ to be a temporary means to glory. Even if you can't see how right now. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, this light, momentary affliction, he's not talking about things that we would normally consider light, momentary afflictions. He's talking about real suffering in his life. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So think of how great the glory must be when someday we'll be able to look back on all the miseries of this life in comparison and say, God, you knew what you were doing. This is worth it. This is worth the sufferings of Christ himself. This is certainly worth my suffering. Thank you. So, until that day when we know glory in that way, we pray, our Father, give us the strength and perspective to deal with your will, to be okay with what you're doing in our lives. You are wiser than we are, and you are good. That much is clear from the cross of Christ, your Son. And we trust that you are able to work all things together for our good, even though our lives are full now of tragedy and pain and injustice. We pray that you would have your will in our lives. Prepare us for heaven as you've promised through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.